Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, the science of Star Trek. There's a group at Monash University in Australia that's developed a technology called a hat pack, where you wear basically this large hat on your head. But what they do is they put a chip, an implant, into your brain's visual cortex. And this hat that picks up visual signals wirelessly sends them to your brain. And all of a sudden, you can do it. You can see. You don't even need eyes or optic nerves to see it. It goes straight to your brain. This podcast is brought to you by Reverse Speech Radio, a podcast committed to telling you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Using the exact same technology as the CIA, they know because they trained them. Join hosts Christian Dicadure and David John Oates every week and hear never-before-heard reversals, revealing the hidden truth. Catch politicians lying, climb inside the head of serial killers, even hear EVPs played in reverse. Who's lying? Who's telling the truth? All will be revealed on Reverse Speech Radio. New episodes drop every Thursday. Find out more at reversespeech.ca. Listen and subscribe at reversespeechradio.libson.com. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Wednesday. Ethan Siegel, a popular science blogger, is here. He's the author of Treknology, the science of Star Trek from tricorders to warp drive. And before we get to that conversation, just a reminder, the November issue of my free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum, is just days away from publication. So if you want to receive that, Plus, get in on the free monthly draws for Strange Planet gear. Go to strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca. Take a few moments and register. All I need is your email address, and then you'll automatically receive the newsletter, Inner Sanctum, and your name goes into the monthly draw for great t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, hoodies, and more. strangeplanet.ca. My next guest is a professional science communicator who has figured out the science of Star Trek. Faster-than-light spacecraft, holographic crew members, and phasers set to stun. There are over 25 iconic inventions from the Star Trek television and film universe. We're going to explore some of these dazzling technologies and their role in Star Trek, the science behind how they work, and how close we are to achieving them in the real world today. Ethan Siegel, Ph.D., born in New York, majored in three different things as an undergrad and got his Ph.D. in theoretical physics. After postdoctoral research focusing on dark matter and cosmic structure formation and a number of teaching stints, he became a physics professor at Lewis and Clark College and a professional science communicator. He regularly appears on television and radio spots teaching the world 
about the latest news and discoveries in science. He's now focusing on writing and speaking full-time. His work has appeared in Discovery, Scientific American, The Wall Street Journal, Esquire, ESPN.com, Medium, Science Blogs, and NASA's The Space Place. His blog, Starts With a Bang, is currently hosted on Forbes and was voted the number one science blog on the Internet by the Institute of Physics, Real Clear Science, and uh, won the People's Choice Award from Physics.org. His uh, first two books, Beyond the Galaxy and Technology, are available, well, just about wherever books are sold. Ethan Siegel, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Now, I'm uh, I'm kind of old school. I like the original series. I'm not a next-generation guy. However, Captain Kirk did a wonderful series. William Shatner did a wonderful series talking also about the you know some of the technology and so forth. But this book really focuses on things that you have researched and, and have sort of figured out theoretically, I guess, how they could work one day. This is the whole thing that threw me for a loop when the idea for this book came along is... When Star Trek came out, so many of these technologies that we had been envisioning, that we had been thinking of, some of them, even though we had thought this was going to be 300 years in the future, in just 50 years from when the original series aired to what was then the present day, many of those technologies are not only so old hat that right. they don't seem futuristic anymore, but they've been wildly surpassed That's true. by the, modern technology. Yeah, like the um, communicator. It's a cell phone. <laughs> Oh, and the cell phone goes so far beyond that. The cell yes. phone co- incorporates ideas of, like, a tablet touchscreen computer. The idea in the original series that you could speak in a voice-activated way to a ship and have it compute things for you and then give you the results back in plain English or whatever your natural language is, right. that was... That was some real science fiction. And now you talk to your phone and you talk to Siri, and Siri's 10 years old. Um, So a lot of these things that we thought were going to be super futuristic, they're already here. Yeah, we still have things to look forward to, like warp drives and transporters and tractor beams. But in a lot of cases, these are not super futuristic technologies that maybe someday they'll be theoretically possible. These are technologies for the most part, with only a few exceptions, that we're already testing in the lab, building prototypes of, and in some cases even testing them on humans. Yeah, I I always wondered, um, I don't know if you would care to speculate, whether Gene Roddenberry, I don't know, he was tapped into something, whether he whether he knew some people in some, you know, uh, uh, research and development at some lab that were maybe leaking some stuff to him. What do you think? You know, a big part of being a science fiction writer, and I, I, I'm lucky enough that I've, I've gotten to know a whole bunch of them. I, I myself stick to, stick to mainstream science, but, but when I speak to people who do science fiction, a lot of them have wild imaginations, but a lot of them also have really strong science backgrounds mm. and a willingness to go talk with cutting-edge scientists, engineers, Um, people with the background, people on the cutting edge, and ask them, hey, what's going on with this? What's possible for this? What's What are the leading ideas for this? What are people working on? And so a lot of the things are based in science. If you're an original series fan, uh, then I'm betting you saw the original Star Trek movies when they came out, like Wrath of Khan and The Voyage Home. Um, Oh, I'm glad you mentioned the I'm glad you mentioned The Voyage Home. That that is a lot of uh, people's favorite. That's number four, right? 
It is Star it, Trek Four. Yeah, that's the the invisible aluminum armor is the one that, that jumps out at me from that uh, that, yeah. that one. And there's a whole chapter in my book on transparent aluminum. So first off, when they were writing that. Um, they knew that transparent aluminum was a military technology that people were working on at the time. Ah. That it has a name known as Alon, A-L-O-N. Yes. That, that, was, that was sort of the code name for transparent aluminum. And if you've ever heard of Sidewinder missiles, these are heat-seeking missiles, the way they work is they leverage transparent aluminum. They use that transparent property of the aluminum to allow that infrared light, the heat, you know, which we, we know is infrared light, to pass through the missile casing, and that's how it can track a direction of if I'm going to seek heat, what direction am I going in? That's, that's why you need transparent aluminum. But in the meantime, we've now used it for bulletproof glass, and it's three times thicker and denser than even even the hardiest glass we've used. So it is, they already knew this is a technology under development. And now here in 2018, we know this is not just a developing technology, this is a technology that's entering widespread use. Ah, and, and for those who don't maybe remember uh, Star Trek for The Voyage Home, this is where they are transporting two humpback whales to the Earth of their time. And uh, in order to to bring them aboard the spaceship, basically they had to have to build a uh, a tank, and they got to replace uh, what like six inch thick plexiglass with uh, this aluminum um, transparent aluminum, which is like uh, what uh, one inch instead of six inches. So uh, yeah, they need it to be harder and denser and and more concentrated and robust. And transparent aluminum is actually a thing that we have today. The only real difference from what Star Trek envisioned to what we have is, you know, if you if you look at the molecular structure from the Star Trek screen that they've got displayed on a, you know, 1984 Apple yes. computer, um, the, the chemical structure we use today is a little bit different from what they envisioned. But it's pretty hard to knock a series for envisioning exactly the type of technology that just a few years later is brought to fruition and is becoming widespread throughout the world. Ethan's They're not going to get all the details right. They no. can't. Otherwise, it wouldn't need real science. We would just hire science fiction writers to develop all our new technologies. Ethan Siegel is with us, theoretical physicist, and we are talking about the science of Star Trek. Uh, it seems like not, a, not an episode went by when Bones McCoy wasn't um, giving someone a shot of some sort of a space vaccine. Uh, they called it hypospray, um, and it's kind of a, a hypodermic injection of, of medication. Um, I don't know if you talk about this at all in, in, your, in your book, but um, um, anything out there now or on the horizon that, that might um, be similar to hypospray? You know, it's really interesting. The older listeners out there will likely remember that they probably got vaccinated at one point via a jet injector. Hmm. And the hypospray is totally based on a jet injector where you take this 
stream of air, you use it to pierce the skin, and then you put in a little fluid trail of whatever you're trying to vaccinate with. That little fluid trail goes right into where you pierce the skin. Ah. And lo and behold, you're all of a sudden full of vaccine and good to go. But one of the things I'm very excited about, because a lot of people are afraid of needles, and and patient non-compliance because you're afraid of shots or your kids are afraid of needles is a really big deal. If you can overcome that, that's worth investing in. And so at MIT Labs, what they're working on is they're working on a way to have a reusable jet injector that doesn't need a replaceable nozzle that will fire with exactly the right amount of pressure so that it will, in fact, completely eliminate any chance of cross-contamination. So even though this was a technology that we had, that we abandoned, there's a push to bring it back. And if they can overcome these obstacles, it'll be something that we'll see again in our lifetimes. All right. Uh, now, tractor beams is interesting. Of course, right now, if an astronaut you know, needs to make a, a repair to a satellite or, let's say, the Hubble Space Telescope, they've got to do those very dangerous... They, you know, they're tethered to the uh, the space shuttle or whatever and do these... It's a very dangerous exercise, really. Uh, but in science fiction, of course, spaceships like the Enterprise, they, they, uh, they snatch each other up using these tractor beams. And I was reading something recently, I think it was the University of Bristol, uh, where they're experimenting with something called an acoustic tractor beam. But it, anyway, it seems like we're on the road to actually realizing tractor beams. There are... It's fascinating, really. There are a few different approaches, but my favorite one doesn't even use acoustics, which are sound waves, but instead uses photons. It uses light waves. And this is really fascinating to me because it doesn't need a medium. It doesn't need the medium of air to work in. It can work in the vacuum of space. What they've discovered you can do is with multiple different laser beams, coherent light in different directions, because light is an electromagnetic wave, right? It has electric fields and magnetic fields that move perpendicular to the light. But if you shine the light with very specific properties and have it converge in a certain point, it can effectively pin matter to that point where if you tried to move it side to side or forward and back, it would exert a force that kept you in place. And as long as you weren't able as that trapped particle to exert a big enough force to overcome those electric and magnetic fields, you wouldn't be able to go anywhere. Then what they can do is they can tune where those laser beams converge and they can drag you, the pinned object, they can drag you towards you. They can drag you towards them. So that's a way to actually pin something in place and bring it in nice and slow and controlled. And that's really wonderful because this technology, it not only works in the vacuum of space, but we're not talking about single atoms or microscopic, like, single-celled animals. They've already gotten this to work on macroscopic, like, visible-sized objects. It's really just a question of scaling it up at this point. So we we could um, see, what, within our lifetime or in our children's lifetime, uh, the ability to levitate heavy objects here on Earth with such a device? You know, I wouldn't count that out at all. When you talk about how fast technology has developed, I think, I think one of the fantastic things we're looking at is... Um, you say, hey, all we have to do is scale this up, scale the power up, 
find the right way to do this, to implement this without harming the target, and I think we'll see that happen. Amazing, amazing. I want to talk to you about uh, uh, phasers, of course. Like stun guns, I think they were using electricity, you know, to, to control cattle like over a hundred years ago, maybe even the, 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 the late 19th century. So some sort of version of a phaser has been around for a very long time, and we've ha- we have had stun guns probably since, what, the early 1970s. But where are we in the development of an actual, you know, a phaser-type weapon that you could set to stun? Yeah, I mean, you know, you you say phasers and people say, well, we have tasers, and sure, yeah, we do, but, but a taser isn't what I want. What I want from a phaser, realistically, and, and this is something that could potentially have a real positive impact on society, when you think about, when you think about how deadly gun shootings are in the hand of law enforcement or in the hands of civilians, um, if there were some way to effectively, at a distance, disable a target without causing physical harm, that would just be, that would be such a boon to society in so many ways. Yes. And the military over the last 10 years has actually been working on this. So this is completely different than a taser. You don't need to make electrical contacts and, and, and pump electricity through something, and that's how you theoretically disable someone. Instead, what the military has developed is a two-phase plasma pulse. And let me tell you how this works. Is this first pulse is what we call ultraviolet light. Now, you know light comes in all sorts of different wavelengths. We have visible light that we can see, and then we have shorter wavelengths, like ultraviolet light, that'll give you a sunburn, but, but can ionize atoms. It can knock electrons off of atoms and molecules. And then you have the lower wavelength stuff, things like infrared radiation or microwave radiation that's, that's heat-based or that causes molecules to rotate. These are longer wavelengths. We can't see either one, but they're very important for what they do. So now, let's take a look at what this two-phase pulse is. The first phase is an ultraviolet pulse. So when it hits the target, and this is very collimated like a laser, when it hits the target, it creates, by kicking those electrons off, a small amount of ionized plasma. The ultraviolet light by itself, this first pulse by itself, it isn't enough plasma to burn anything or harm anything. It just creates some ionized particles over there. Then that second pulse, though, this is high-energy infrared or microwave light. The worst you'd ever feel from it if it struck you was just it would get warm. It would feel like heat. But if it strikes that plasma, the place where the first pulse went, the plasma is going to absorb all of that energy. And when you have particles that absorb a lot of energy in a really short amount of time, they heat up. They heat up and they expand. And in the real world, that means if I fire this two-phase pulse at you and the first pulse hits you in the chest, you know, maybe your shirt or your skin will have some of the molecules on it ionized. So there'll be some nuclei that are ions and there'll be some free electrons. Then that second pulse comes in and all of a sudden that plasma is going to heat up and expand and that's going to make a concussive explosion that will knock you off your feet and will possibly knock you out, knock you unconscious, but that won't be with lethal force. It won't have a chance of killing you. So in many ways, it's even safer than like rubber bullets 
or a taser because sometimes people do react negatively to those. So for me, the fact that we've made a prototype, and look, I'm not going to pretend this is just a handheld device. At this point, it's big enough that it needs to be vehicle-mounted. Right. But the fact that we've made this device, this gives me so much hope that someday we may have a plasma gun, a plasma rifle, uh, even a plasma handgun that can do this exact thing, that can disable a target from up to a mile and a half or two kilometers away without any risk of lethal force. Wow. Um, although, you know, um, with with all technologies, you know, there's always the risk of it falling into the wrong hands. I mean, we want the good guys to have this. <laughs> we don't want the uh, the terrorists to have this and so forth. You know, that's a that's a huge issue, and I, I don't want to pretend that this is not something worth addressing, because I write about this in almost every chapter of the book as well. Um, Star Trek is famous, and if you're a fan of the original series, you must have loved this, not just for the technology, but for making sure that it's used ethically. Star Trek always has these huge internal battles right. between right and wrong, and what's the right way to use this and get this out? And the technology, if I can tell you that I'm most worried about it, and I'm sorry to bust into the next generation here, <laughs> but next generation fans will really uh, remember iconically Geordi LaForge's visor. Right. Geordi right. is blind from birth, and he has these implants in his temples. He hooks a visor up into that, and all of a sudden, these signals that his visor picks up go through his temples into his optic nerve and gets transmitted to his brain so he can see without having working eyes. Well, in real life, there's a group at Monash University in Australia that's developed a technology called a hat pack where you wear this, you know, basically this large hat on your head. But what they do is, rather than going through your temples, they put a chip, an implant, into your brain's visual cortex. And this hat that picks up visual signals wirelessly sends them to your brain. And all of a sudden, you can do it. You can see wavelengths beyond what human eyes can see, and you don't even need eyes or optic nerves to see it. It goes straight to your brain. And you say, wow, what a wonderful advance. It can restore sight to the blind. And I say, yes, but what happens when someone hacks into the chip in your head? What happens when someone starts sending you false information about your own senses and what they tell you about the world around you. What would it do if the road curves to your left and you're driving and someone sends your brains a signal to tell you to turn the wheel to the right? Off the cliff you go and that's the end of you. You're thinking about technology in a vacuum is only good for the technology's sake. When it comes to how to implement it for humans, you have to think about how can we make it safe and effective and ensure that it'll be used for good and not evil. Uh, precisely. Yeah, that's a huge challenge. I want to start talking about the Universal Translator, if we could, for a moment. Um, you know, there are all this planet hopping going on in this series, and, and yet they manage to communicate with all of the indigenous inhabitants of these of these planets, and they're using uh, this Universal Translator. Uh, now, at, at home we use Babel, and some people use Rosetta Stone, but that's not what we're talking about here. Uh, how close are we to, to uh, having a, uh, a truly Universal Translator? 
Well, it's really incredible. I don't know if you got a chance to see the video of the Google Pixel 2 demo that they did last year. They had someone plug in their smartphone to an earpiece, and another person with the same Google Pixel phone plug into their earpiece. The first guy speaks to the woman in Swedish, and in less than two seconds, she hears what he spoke in her ears in English, and she speaks back into her phone in English, and he hears two seconds later the translated version of that in Swedish. There is no intermediary there. It's just the computer. The key is if you understand both languages well enough and how they go back and forth to each other, you can do this. More of my conversation with Ethan Siegel when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. It's time to welcome back Colleen Forgus, our certified nutritional therapy consultant, and she manages the full script dispensary at strangeplanet.ca. Welcome back, Colleen. How are you? Great, Richard. Thank you. What do we have on the full script dispensary for breast health? We have a product called Pectisol C. This is derived from citrus pectin, and it's excellent for supporting cellular health. So I definitely recommend this product for breast wellness. It also is great for prostate, lung health, all of the cells throughout the body. And also you have some tips for Breast Wellness Month. Right. I I wanted to just give a couple of quick tips to women out there. As much as we can, avoid wearing underwire bras. There's a lot of great new bras out there that don't include underwire, so I would suggest those. I often see women tucking their cell phone into their bras. That would definitely be something we want to avoid, minimize radiation exposure. I would include a lot of sulfur-based vegetables in the diet, so things like onions, garlic, sauerkraut, and minimize soy products in the diet. They just produce excess estrogen, and it's just not something I would recommend for breast wellness. All right, Colleen, we'll talk again next week. Thanks so much. Thanks, Richard. Full script dispensary. Don't forget, all orders receive 10% off. Just go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the full script dispensary button. Full script, nature grade, science made. These products have not been assessed by the FDA and are not intended to treat, cure, or diagnose. If you have a medical concern, please consult your health care provider. say that there is as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Ethan Siegel, the author of Treknology, The Science of Star Trek, is here. I want to just throw this one out there. We mentioned The Voyage Home, which was episode four. And I'd have to say, admittedly, my least favorite episode was uh, episode three, The Search for Spock. Uh, however, there was one cool thing, and that was the torpedo coffin. Of course, this is where they, uh, the beloved Mr. Spock is uh, um, basically, you know, they, they place his body in, in, a, uh, in a coffin, and they fire it out of this torpedo bay. Uh, and he lands on this uh, on this barren planet, which is about to undergo this, you know, 
rejuvenation and so forth because of the Genesis project. But torpedo coffins, um, when we might, when might we see those? Oh, I mean, that, so that's interesting because I do write about photon torpedoes in the book, mm-hmm. but I don't write about torpedo coffins. I, I do mention that they use the torpedo casing as a coffin, but really the, the only thing keeping us from having torpedo coffins is the fact that it's expensive to launch coffins or anything to space. I, I have a strong hope that our buddy Elon Musk is going to help us out with that, um, and that if you wanted your body or the body of your loved ones launched into space upon death, that this might be a routine thing that we see coming up this century. Uh, people are actually sending up remains samples of themselves into space. You know who the first human being was to have their remains sent to space? Uh, it was Gene Roddenberry. Ah, makes On sense. October 22nd, 1992, they launched his remains aboard Space Shuttle Columbia, and they left it in low Earth orbit, where it continues to orbit today. Ah, I do want to get around to warp speed, of course, and transporters. One of the handy uh, scientific tools that appeared almost in every episode was that it reminds me of the old realistic tape recorders we used to have. And, of course, Spock had it over his shoulder, and he would use it to detect everything from oxygen levels and so forth. And that was the tricorder. So oh, yeah. what do we have now, or, or how far are we along the road to getting one of these tricorders? Well, you'll remember that tricorders had a lot of different functions when they first started, right? Yeah, it could be medical or engineering. It could be for weather or it could be for detecting like geological things um, or it could be for scanning humans. And it's really that latter function that we've been focusing on is, is how can we have a tiny, lightweight medical diagnostic device that would be non-invasive that can tell us all sorts of important things. And in theory, this is possible because if you can tell, you know, from someone's breath what their oxygen levels are doing, um, you can learn something about that. From their, uh, from an infrared sensor, you can learn what their body temperature is. From, so from all sorts of these remote things, you can learn to what are their vital signs, what is their blood pressure. You can also learn more intricate things like does this person have cancer? Is their immune system elevated? What's, what's going on inside of them? Well, they've developed, you know, over the last decade, they've had a series of devices where they've had a competition for can you make a single handheld device that can perform all these sorts of functions and tests uh, on a person without being invasive, and can you do it in a handheld device that weighs less than five pounds? Well, this was called the Qualcomm Tricorder X Prize. <laughs> and sure enough, last year, they issued the award to, I love this, Final Frontier Lab. Of course. <laughs> made a prototype that was able in under five pounds, so in under about, you know, two and a half kilograms, they were able to make this single device that could measure and check for 12 independent vital signs and disease markers. Um, and, and yep, and that, that has been a continued area of development. And how amazing would that be that, you know, 
if you could go, you know, to some remote place on an expedition and if someone were to fall ill, as long as you had one of these tricorder devices with you, uh, you can know what was going on with them. It wouldn't be some mystery illness until you got them to a hospital. This could revolutionize first aid. It could revolutionize field medicine. It could revolutionize health for people who go hiking or backpacking or backwoods camping. I gotta tell you, I am pretty excited about the not too distant future. Uh, there's so much doom and gloom in the world, but, you know, I think the answers to many of the world's seemingly intractable problems are gonna be solved through technology. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. And you know, this really brings up what we were talking about earlier too, that Technology by itself is neither good nor evil, but if we can use it, I mean, this was the whole spirit of Star Trek, that they envisioned a world hundreds of years in the future where the biggest problems facing humanity today, problems like war and inequality and hunger and, 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 you know, all of these huge societal ills, they were solved because we invested in science and technology and we used the fruits of what we learned for the benefit of all of humanity. That is still possible. And on my most optimistic days, I think that if we work together and we band together and we advocate for this, we can actually make this so. We can have this become our future. Now, this isn't Star Trek, what I was going to mention now, but one of those most depressing problems we often hear about is all of this plastic in the world's oceans. You know, there's enough plastic that you can make an island something like the size of Australia, and the problem is once it breaks down, it's very difficult, you know, to gather up. Then there's this Dutch entrepreneur, I think he's only in his early 20s, and uh, he may have invented a way to clean up our oceans, something like getting rid of like 90% of the plastic in the world's oceans. Do you know about this guy? I think it's Boyan Slat or something is his name. You know, I haven't kept up on that. You know, most of the most of the scientists I know who work on uh, marine science, they, they tell me that, you know, plastic in the ocean is a really big deal. Yeah. But things like the Pacific garbage patch that they talk about... Yes is not like an Australia-sized island that people talk about. It's really like a thin layer of, of plastic, you know, degrading molecules, and that over enough time, sunlight will do a good enough job of breaking that down, that that's not something we, we really need to worry about cleaning up. What we need to worry about are the pollutants we put into the ocean that don't break down or that poison the wildlife in there and that those should be our primary concerns as far as ocean pollution. True enough, true enough. Let's talk a little bit about warp speed, shall we? I don't ever remember getting kind of a detailed explanation in either the Star Trek series, any of them, or the or the uh, the movies exactly how warp drive works. Something about bending, you know, time and space. But um, is is warp drive even in the cards? You know, it's really wonderful. If you had asked me this question 25 years ago. All I could have done is I could have waved my hands and say, well, in Einstein's general relativity, space and time are malleable, and so we can't rule it out, but I have no idea how we could make it happen. And all of that changed in the mid-1990s when a physicist named Miguel Alcubierre 
worked out a solution. He found a solution to Einstein's equations. These are the equations that govern space and time where you could travel. Let's say I want to go from point A to point B, and they're 40 light years apart. So I've got this star I want to go to. It's 40 light years away. Under Einstein's theory conventionally, if you're back here on Earth and I get in my spaceship, if I go really fast to the speed of light, really close to it, right, the cosmic speed limit, if I go as close as I can, then what I can do is maybe I can make that 40 light year journey in only six months from my frame of reference. And the reason is we have this phenomenon called length contraction. When I travel close to the speed of light, it appears that the space in front of me gets compressed. So that's fine. I travel there six months. I do my thing. I come back six months later, and I'm only gone a year. But for you, back on Earth, 81 years, not one year, but 81 years will have passed. So I can go do my mission, but then that's a big problem for everyone back on Earth because you've aged as normal. So you've got to have some way to overcome that. And it wasn't just Star Trek fiction, but the actual laws of Einstein's relativity that allow us to do that. What this guy, what Miguel Alcubierre found is that if you build the right type of space-time, you know, you can say, like, okay, I'm going to have the ship in some sort of a bubble, and then I'm going to alter the space-time outside of it. And what I'll do is, instead of moving close to the speed of light and having space appear to contract in front of me, you can actually deform space itself so that the space in front of you, in the direction you want to move, does compress. But the way you make up for it is the space behind you has to expand by an equal and opposite amount. So if you can find the right energy and the right configuration to get your space to do that, then all of a sudden you can make that 40 light year journey in six months. You can come back in six months and I on my ship will have aged a year, but you back on Earth will also only have aged a year. We can keep time going the way we want and space going the way we want by implementing this drive. So then you say, oh, that's real exciting. What do we need to make that happen? And this is where I have to say, well, the solution is real, but it requires the existence of something we haven't yet discovered. And that thing we need to have is some form of either negative mass or negative energy. Right now, we only think we have the positive kind, but there are all sorts of things that aren't ruled out. And if negative mass is real, if negative energy is real, if these things are possible, then warp drive all of a sudden goes from the realm of science fiction into this is just an engineering question. My word. You know, they don't call you the science communicator for nothing. Uh, I wish I had a science teacher like you when I was in school. Well, a few lucky kids did get to have that, and maybe uh, maybe a few more will before all is said and done. Uh, so, warp drive. Uh, what about antimatter? Is there such a thing? Oh, there absolutely is such a thing as antimatter. In fact, antimatter may be the key to unlocking warp drive. Here's an example. When you, when you have normal matter, you know, whatever it is, like any atoms, 
if you drop them in a gravitational field, they fall down. Right here on Earth, they fall down towards the center of the Earth at 9.8 meters per second squared. Right. What does antimatter do? Believe it or not, we've never measured it. We believe antimatter, and we've made it. We've made antiprotons, antielectrons. We've brought them together and made neutral anti-hydrogen atoms. We've tested its spectral lines and properties, and we've discovered that, yep, it behaves just like normal hydrogen, just like it's supposed to. What's really fascinating is we've actually confined it and kept it away from matter, because matter and antimatter annihilate. But if you take your neutral antimatter, we've been able to keep it stable for like 20 minutes at a time, which is a really big deal. We're not talking tiny, tiny fractions of a second. We're talking like real long time scales that you just can have these atoms and stare at them. What direction do anti-atoms fall in a gravitational field? We've never measured it well enough. There's an experiment going on at CERN the same labs where they have the Large Hadron Collider, they also have what's called the Alpha Experiment, where they are creating and working to measure the fundamental properties of neutral anti-hydrogen. If it turns out that antimatter falls up in a gravitational field instead of falling down like normal matter does, then all sorts of Star Trek-inspired technologies like warp drive, like artificial gravity, they become real possibilities. That's the last element we need to make these things physically plausible. And this could actually happen if antimatter has this property that we haven't yet measured or decided. Fascinating. Um, we, we've mentioned Ben Rich on this program a number of times, the, the former director of Lockheed Martin's sort of secret uh, pr- uh, program, Skunk Works. And his often repeated line, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but he supposedly said, we have things in the desert in hangars that are 50 years beyond your wildest imagination. If you've seen it on Star Wars or Star Trek, we've been there, done that, or decided it wasn't worth bothering. Do you think that that Ben Rich actually... I mean, whether or not he said those things, I mean, is it true, do you suppose? Well, you know, the military, we know they've developed a whole lot of things that, you know, that we don't have access to, that, you know, you know the, the classic line that I hear is, you're on a need-to-know basis, mm. and you don't need to know that. Right. Um, so when you talk about what they've developed, well, stealth technology, um, that was something that started with the military. That was something that started, in fact, at Skunk Works, where they had the Blackbird SR-71 right. and its predecessor vehicles. Um, so when you talk about, is that possible? Oh, yeah, I'm sure they have a slew of things. You may have heard, you know, it's in the news right now because the you know, fiscal year 2018 budget is threatening to cut it. Um, you might have heard about... NASA's W-first telescope. Mm-hmm. This telescope is basically uh, the same body as the Hubble Space Telescope. NASA was approached by the U.S. military a few years ago and basically said, hey, uh, you know the Hubble Space Telescope? Well, uh, we have a couple of extras of those. Do you want two? 
<laughs> and NASA was like, yeah, of course we do. Well, that tells you that if the Department of Defense has two that they're just giving away to NASA, that leads you to believe there's probably more than two in orbit looking at things on Earth that scientists don't generally know about. So, um, yeah, I totally believe that the military has developed some really amazing technologies. When they can spin them off and put them to good use in the world, they do. Sometimes when they choose to keep the technology a secret, they do that. I have no doubts that the military has developed a large number of technologies that that we don't yet know about because we've seen civilians use or develop technologies that we thought were impossible. You know, when you talk about Star Trek, I think about things like the holodeck and holograms. Yes. And those are becoming real. They have a they had a demo in Tokyo a few years ago where you could put on virtual reality goggles and a headset and you could hear the sound of dripping water and you could see falling, you know, electronic water drops. But the most amazing thing was if you put your hand out under them and you hit one in three dimensions, you know, left, right, up, down, and forward, backward, if you got your hand under where that water drop was supposed to be, yes. they had infrasound sensors set up that you would feel oh that God. water drop splash whoop, in your hand, and it would actually feel wet. Wow. Imagine that. Imagine a virtual, like, touch hologram that could mimic sensations like pressure and pain and temperature and itch and even wetness. Oh my gosh. I was just I think I was reading today about um they're talking about within five years they could broadcast um uh basketball games. I don't know why they chose basketball, but uh, uh um as a holograph. I wouldn't be surprised at all. And probably basketball, because it's impressive how many intricate movements you have all at once. Right. What that, would, that would give new meaning to the marketing of you're not just watching the game, you're in the game. That's right. Now, not just Jack Nicholson gets to sit, you know, right on the floor and watch the Lakers play. What That's about right. Wait till they get a load of you <laughs> with your hologram. There you go. What about food replicators? Oh, come on. They just 3D printed the first pizza in zero gravity aboard the International Space Station. <laughs> they get the cost down far enough, and you supply them with the proper foodstuffs. You've got food replicators today with current technology, including in zero gravity. Wow. Ethan, I could talk to you all night, and I wish we had all night. We are, we are sadly out of time. I, I, I'd love for you to join us again sometime. You well, just, I'm sure we'll find a way to make that happen. Uh, you guys know where to reach me, and I'll make sure to make myself available. This is a lot of fun for me, too. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back with a few words on an upcoming episode. My Strange Planet shop is filled to the rafters and bursting with great gear. Check out the Toxic Mail and the Protect Our Power Grid t-shirts. My personal favorite right now, though, is my line of t-shirts celebrating carbon dioxide, the miracle molecule that makes life possible on our planet. But there's more than just t-shirts. There's mugs, phone cases, great hoodies and sweatshirts, tote bags, stickers, and more. The proceeds from the Strange Planet shop goes to support the work I do here. 
They help make this podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited, and my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, all possible. So, get on up to my Strange Planet shop today. Just go to strangeplanet.ca. Remember, Christmas is coming. It's a strange planet. Get the gear. Coming up next time, forget Woodward and Bernstein and the Washington Post. Hear the real Watergate story involving a Washington, D.C. call girl. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. 